Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for October 30th to November 5th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Gerald Grobe on the rise of the Community Mental Health Center in America. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For October 30th, in 1942, Stark R. Hathaway and J. Charnley McKinley's Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, or MMPI, was first published. The MMPI is one of the most popular and influential personality tests in history. For November 1st, in 1842, the Asylum Journal became the first regular newspaper printed in and issued from a mental hospital, the Vermont Asylum for the Insane, in Brattleboro. It was begun by a 17-year-old printer, admitted as a patient. The paper's motto was Semmel in Senevimus Omnis, or We Have All, at some time, been mad. Publication ended in 1847 with the printer's discharge from the hospital. For November 2nd, in 1982, the people of Berkeley, California, voted to ban electroconvulsive shock therapy by a general referendum ballot initiative. The ban was later overturned by the courts because it abridged the patient's rights to treatment prescribed by his or her doctor. For November 3rd, in 1938, Henry A. Murray's book, Explorations in Personality, a clinical and experimental study of 50 men of college age, was published. The staff of the Harvard Psychological Clinic assisted in the writing of the book. Also on November 3rd, in 1940, the National Research Council appointed the Emergency Committee in Psychology to mobilize psychological skills for service in World War II. The members included Gordon Allport, Carl Dallenbach, Walter Miles, and Robert Yerkes, among others. For November 4th, in 1899, Sigmund Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, was first published. 600 copies were printed, and it took eight years to sell them. Also on November 4th, in 1906, German psychiatrist Alois Alzheimer presented a talk entitled On a Peculiar Disorder of the Cerebral Cortex to the 37th Conference of the Southwest German Psychiatrists in Tübingen. This was the first report of a case of the syndrome of behavioral and physical degeneration in aging adults that now bears Alzheimer's name. The term Alzheimer's disease was first used by Alzheimer's colleague Emil Kreplin in 1910. Also on November 4th in 1970, a 13-year-old wild child who had been raised in isolation for most of her life was discovered by child welfare authorities in Arcadia, California. Named Jeannie, the child's physical, social, and linguistic development was initially studied by a University of California Los Angeles research team headed by David Riggler.
On October 31, 1963, President John F. Kennedy signed into law the Community Mental Health Centers Act, which made sweeping changes to the American system of care for the mentally ill that had been in place since before the start of the 20th century. Within four years of the law's enactment, nearly 300 community mental health centers had sprung up, while large numbers of aging state mental hospitals began to close, discharging large numbers of patients into the surrounding community. On the line to tell us about what the community mental health movement's intentions were, as well as what it actually accomplished, is Dr. Gerald Grobe of Rutgers University in New Jersey. Professor Grobe is the author of several books, including From Asylum to Community, Mental Health Policy in Modern America, published by Princeton in 1991, and The Mad Among Us, A History of the Care of America's Mentally Ill, published by Free Press in 1994. Professor Grobe, well, first, could you tell us a bit about the state of mental health treatment in, in America prior to the advent of community mental health centers, especially about the character of the old state hospital system? Prior to World War II, the assumption was that the appropriate place for the care and treatment of people with a severe mental illness was in a mental hospital. Over 90% of all people in mental hospitals were in state hospitals. Uh, the private sector was a very small uh, component. Now, mental hospitals had acquired a kind of bad reputation by 1940. Uh, around 1940, there were probably just under a half a million people in state mental hospitals. Now, the mental hospitals came into existence in the early 19th century because the assumption uh, was that moral or psychological treatment uh, could reverse the course of an illness. Uh, the belief was that a variety of factors in an individual's life, bad marriages, uh, business failures, personal shortcomings, bad habits such as masturbation or alcohol could cause mental illness. So if you removed a person to a different environment and brought to bear appropriate influences on them, the course of the illness could be reversed. And the second you created mental hospitals, you began to give families an alternative. Families, when they reached the breaking point, would be willing to commit members to a mental hospital. Now, the interesting thing was in the 19th century, mental hospitals were relatively short stays. The bulk of patients were admitted and discharged within three to nine months. There were very few long-stay patients in mental hospitals. This changed toward the end of the 19th century as a result of the passage of state laws. Prior to the 1890, responsibility for mentally ill people was divided between the local community and the uh, state. Many local communities preferred to keep people with a severe mental illness in, a, in an almshouse because it was cheaper. If they sent them to a state hospital, they often had to pay the costs associated with the confinement. And the state, uh, there was a movement in the late 19th century to simply eliminate local governments from the care of the mentally ill. So you get the passage of what's called state care acts, beginning with New York in 1890, Massachusetts a little later, in which the state says, from now on, all people with mental illnesses are the responsibility of the state. What happened there was a very peculiar thing. Local officials saw an entrepreneurial opportunity 
that is, their almshouses, which in the 19th century were also old age homes, had large numbers of elderly people suffering from senility or the like. They redefined senility in psychiatric terms and began to send all of their aged residents in almshouses to mental hospitals. So in the first half of the 20th century, close to half of all first admissions are people over the age of 65. And the second you put that many elderly people who have no prospects for uh, recovery, the hospital began to be transformed into more of a custodial institution. And so people began to think of the mental hospital as a place where you sent people to die. It acquired a kind of odious reputation. What people didn't look at is at the same time there were substantial numbers of people who were admitted to mental hospitals and discharged within relatively short periods of stay. And discharge rates actually improved between 1915 and 1945. Nevertheless, the image of the hospital was a custodial place. And the problems of custodialism were compounded by two events, the Great Depression of the 1930s, which put states in a very precarious financial position so that funding of public institutions dropped precipitously and then the impact of World War II when a great many medical personnel entered the armed forces and left public hospitals in a very precarious state. So that by 1945, the mental hospital, to use Mary Jane Ward's famous novel, The Snake Pit, were regarded as snake pits, uh, even though people were forgetting about the functions they served, namely as the one institution in the United States that was taking care of elderly, senile people, people with senile dementia, what today we would call Alzheimer's mm -hmm. uh, uh, disease. So in 1945, the stage was set for some kind of change. Well, yes, and, and, and then comes this new model, uh, this new idea, community mental health. Um, right. could, could you talk to me a bit about what that phrase meant and how it was <laughs> supposed to solve the problems of the old state okay. hospitals? Okay, the concept of community mental health, oddly enough, originates during World War II. World War II had a major impact on psychiatry. Uh, the number of physicians who identified themselves as psychiatrists doubled during World War II because of the problems that military commanders were experiencing uh, on the field of battle. They began to find that a substantial number of soldiers began to manifest psychiatric symptoms, which made them non-functional. And uh, there were some very famous psychiatric studies done by people like uh, Roy Grinker, John Spiegel, uh, and others, and they found a very funny thing. The assumption was that green, untested recruits would be the first to break down under the stress of battle. They found that the reverse was true, that it was the combat veterans who were breaking down. They found that a soldier experiencing psychiatric symptoms, if you sent them to um, the battalion aid station, which is closest to the field of battle, gave him hot food, let him sleep for 24 hours. About half of them could be returned to their unit. The other group was sent to the base hospital, which is usually three to five miles in the rear. They found that if you kept them there for four or five days, let them sleep, give them a bath, hot food, you could return them to combat. They found that the further and further you move soldiers away from their 
combat unit where they had all kinds of social and personal relationships, the less likely they were to recover. Now, the psychiatric lessons of World War II were then carried over into the civilian sector by these physicians who had become psychiatrists during World War II, and they began to argue that mental hospital removed people with severe mental illnesses from their natural habitat, making it unlikely they would recover, that the best place to treat people was in the community. Mm -hmm. So that's how the professional psychiatric and psychological communities uh, uh, caught on to this idea. But how did the political class finally catch on to this, culminating with the passage of the Community Mental Health Centers Act in 1963? Okay, the key figure here is Robert Felix. Felix was trained uh, in Colorado under Franklin Ebor, who was one of the early proponents of treating people in the community. He actually developed this idea even before World War II. And Felix's experiences with mental hospitals were terrible. So he believed that you had to have an entirely new policy. You had to get rid of mental hospitals and provide all care and treatment in the community. His concept uh, was a public health concept. That is, the way to deal with this problem is to prevent mental illness. In the 1940s, he became the head of uh, a division within the public health service uh, of mental hygiene. And he was a very adroit bureaucratic figure. He wanted the federal government, which hitherto had played no role in mental health policy, to begin to take a leading role and to redirect policy away from institutionalization toward community care and treatment. Mm -hmm. In 1946, he plays a key role, he and Mary Switzer, Switzer and a series of other people, in getting Congress to uh, enact the National Mental Health Act of 1946, which basically, A, creates the National Institute of Mental Health, and it provides grants to states for demonstration projects, training. But the one thing that Felix argued, that the funds under the National Mental Health Act could in no way be used in state hospitals, that you had to have a complete break. So during the 1950s, Felix begins to build up a constituency because he has money to give to states, and he begins to use his influence to try and somehow redirect policy. It's going to take a while. Meanwhile, the states are beginning to get concerned about the costs of mental health care. Mental health care is the single largest welfare expenditure by states as late as the 1950s. New York State, for example, spends 35% of its operating budget on its mental hospital system. They have about 120,000 people in New York State mental hospitals. And, and the assumption in the 1950s is that what you want to do is to keep your state hospital system, but provide transition to community institutions so that a person who is admitted to a mental hospital treated can then be released back into the community where it, there would be institutions to provide continuity of care. Now, Felix doesn't buy into this at all. He believes that the hospital system is so archaic that the best thing would be to get rid of it. What happens in 1955, the Joint Commission on Mental Illness and Health is created. Uh, it's the idea of a uh, Pennsylvania psychiatrist who argues that we've got to have a Flexner-type study. You know, Flexner's study in 1910 
was used to transform the system of medical education. So the Joint Commission was going to do a study which would hopefully lead to a transformation of mental health policy. They produced a whole batch of monographs, and in 1961, they released their final report called Action for Mental Health, in which they have a smorgasbord of recommendations. They want a tripling of expenditures for mental health. Uh, they want no state hospital to have more than 1,000 patients, and any hospital that has more than 1,000 patients be converted into institutions for the care of the chronically ill. Now, just at this point, Kennedy enters the White House. Kennedy is not really interested in mental health, although he's often held up as a champion of it. His sister, Eunice Shriver, is an advocate for the retarded, and she hates psychiatry because she feels that psychiatry has disregarded people with developmental disabilities. In Congress, on the other hand, you have a very powerful mental health lobby associated with people like Senator Lister Hill, John Fogarty in, in the House, who's saying, you're not going to damage mental health in place of retardation. So Kennedy is faced with conflicting pressures on all sides, and he does what all presidents do under those situations. He creates a uh, interagency task force to advise him. And the interagency task force includes people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Now, there is now, they don't know very much about the subject, but they've been asked by the president to come up with recommendations. So they decided that they need some help. And they appoint Felix as their staff person, who's the head of the NIMH from 1949 to 64. Well, the second you appoint Felix to that position, you know what's going to happen. He's going to steer policy toward the direction that he thought appropriate. As a result of Felix's work, you get the passage of the Community Mental Health Centers Act of 1963, which is a bizarre piece of legislation. The legislation provides for federal subsidies to create community mental health centers. Now, the curious thing is no one has the vaguest idea of what the hell a community mental health center is, what it's supposed to do. It's set up as a freestanding institution with no links to mental hospitals whatsoever, and it's supposed to provide care and treatment in the community. Now, the crazy thing is that if you look at the mental hospital population, 75% of the people in mental hospitals are either unmarried, widowed, or divorced. Now, if they're going to be treated in the community, who's going to take care of them? Where are they going to live? What sources of income are they going to have? Mm -hmm. There's no attention paid to questions like that. You get the creation of a new institution with no links to mental hospitals. And so what happens after 1963 is that community mental health centers begin to cater to a very different population, what's often euphemistically called the worried well, children, alcoholics, a whole range of people with problems in living but not people with a severe mental illness. In fact, the studies that we have show that only about 10% of the people who were treated in community mental health centers were people with a severe mental illness. The other 90% were new clientele. So what the Community Mental Health Centers Act did is to expand the clientele base of the mental health system, whereas before, the center of the mental health system was the state mental hospital, which focused exclusively on people with severe mental illnesses. 
so that people with severe mental illnesses after this point are forced to compete with all kinds of other groups seeking psychological uh, help. Now, community mental health centers were really incapable of dealing with people with a severe mental illness for a whole variety of reasons. People with a severe illness are not easy to treat or take care of. They require a whole range of social support services which were not available. And community mental health centers, the staff, began to focus on groups that were easier to deal with. So that by the 1970s, you began to have very large numbers of people with a severe mental illness in the community with a very decentralized system with no focus whatsoever. Right. So instead of integrating the mentally ill into the community, we seem to have ended up with a system where many of the most seriously mentally ill are living on city streets in far well, worse condition than they would have been even in the old city. Yeah, in, in some ways. Uh, that gets us into deinstitutionalization. Now, the history of deinstitutionalization, which comes into play at this point, has quite different origins. People assume that the passage of the Community Mental Health Centers Act plus the introduction of the psychotropic drugs beginning in the mid-1950s made it possible to discharge people from state hospitals, and that's totally wrong. Between 1955 and 1965, the decline in the state hospital population was only about one to one and a half percent a year. The institutionalization doesn't get going until about 1965, and it gets going because of the passage of Medicaid in particular. Now, what Medicaid does, it says, we'll pay for the care of people in chronic nursing facilities, you know, nursing homes and the like. We will not pay a penny toward the care of people in state mental hospitals. So states began to redefine senility as a non-psychiatric problem, and instead of taking care of elderly people with senile psychosis, dementia, and the like in mental hospitals, began to send them to nursing homes, simply because if you sent a person to a nursing home, the federal government paid the bill, not the states. So between 1965 and 1968, there's a massive exodus of elderly people from state hospitals, but it's simply trans-institutionalization. They're sent to nursing homes. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to... Medicaid, you also have a series of entitlement programs, Social Security Disability Insurance, which goes back to the 1950s. If you have Social Security eligible and you're disabled, you can get a monthly payment. And then in 1971, Supplementary Security Income, SSI, is enacted. And all of a sudden, there are resources for people with a severe mental illness to live in the community because... If you're Social Security eligible, you get payments under SSDI. If you're not, there's a waiting period, you can get it under SSI. The minute you're eligible for these, you're eligible for Medicaid, which can pay medical bills. You're eligible for food stamps, and you're eligible for housing uh, supplements. So all of a sudden, by the early 70s, states find that there's a lot of resources which will enable people with a severe mental illness to live in the community. And that hastens the discharge of a lot of people from hospitals. Hospital stays drop precipitate, stays in mental hospitals drop precipitously. The difficulty is that each one of these programs is administered by different agencies with different subcultures and different objectives. 
And a person with a severe mental illness has a great deal of trouble in maneuvering between six or seven or eight different kinds of programs. Well, thank you very much for this today. We've been speaking to Dr. Gerald Grobe of Rutgers University about the passage of the Community Mental Health Centers Act in 1963. Professor Grobe is the author of several books, including From Asylum to Community, Mental Health Policy in Modern America, published by Princeton in 1991, and The Mad Among Us, A History of the Care of America's Mentally Ill, published by Free Press in 1994. And now it's time for our birthdays. For October 30th, in 1855, Gilles de la Tourette was born. Tourette is remembered uh, for identifying a syndrome of tics, explosive outbursts, and as he said, astonishing and imaginative profanity that bears his name. For October 31st, in 1905, Harry F. Harlow was born. Harlow is best known for his studies of contact comfort and the effects of social isolation in monkeys. He was president of the American Psychological Association in 1958. For November 1st, in 1899, John F. Fulton was born. Fulton was a neurophysiologist who discovered the receptors the, that are the source of the muscle senses. His careful studies of the effects of prefrontal lobotomy on effective behavior was of interest to psychologists. For November 4th, in 1904, Horace Mann Bond was born. Bond was an educational researcher and administrator whose studies of racial biases in testing and education were among the first empirical approaches to those topics. Bond's son, Julian Bond, has been a prominent Georgia politician and civil rights activist. And also on November 4th, in 1906, Stanley Smith Stevens was born. Stevens formulated the power law of psychophysics, devised direct scaling methods, extensively studied auditory perception, and helped to convey the philosophy of operationism to American psychology. And finally, for November 5th, in 1896, Lev Semenovich Vygotsky was born. Vygotsky recast Soviet psychology in a mold consistent with Marxist thought. His special research interests were the social development of the child, especially as mediated by language. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the first initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University.